Welcome to Movie House Sports Psychology, the podcast where we look at your favorite movies and TV shows through the lens of mental health and sports psychology. I'm Dr. Jason Von Steetz, a licensed psychologist specializing in clinical and sports psychology. If you're interested in how psychological principles apply to your favorite fictional characters, this is the podcast for you. Let's get started. Okay, welcome back to Movie House Sports Psychology. Another fun episode today, and we're welcoming back friend of the show, David Dirk Smith. Uh, David, how are you doing today? Fabulous. How are you? <laughs> oh man, I was I was just gonna say good, but now I feel I don't know if it's keeping up with the Joneses or maybe I feel better after you're fabulous. But now I'm I don't know if I'm quite fabulous yet, but I'm I'm feeling uh, let's say. Um, Feeling very good now. Very good. Good. Okay. Good. Yeah, you're, yeah you're, we'll, you know, you're you're just on the bridge of fabulous. Not quite fabulous, <laughs> but you know, you're getting there. Yeah. yeah, we'll get we'll get there as we're talking about uh, today's movie. And uh, before I get to that, let me just uh, give you a little bit of an intro. You are a strength and conditioning coach. You're a sports psychology professional, a PhD student, and an LGBTQ advocate. So those are all really cool things. So thanks for joining today. Thank you. And I also appreciate the recommendation on LinkedIn where you definitely oh, describe like, how are you doing all this stuff? You know, as a single person, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to figure that out myself, but somehow I pull it off every week. Uh, yeah, that's the, uh, you're doing a very good job. We can even um, uh, add your, I don't remember if I posted your LinkedIn account before, but we can add that to the show notes and then people can find out about all the great work you're doing and even read my recommendation for you there. You, you know, you uh, know, you're in your thirties when I'm like, follow me on LinkedIn. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. No more uh, friend finder or uh, <laughs> <Right>. friendster <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> uh, uh, so today we're going to talk about an, one of my favorite movies, lots of people's favorite movies. It's um, there's a lot of words to describe it. It's an eighties movie. It's an action movie. It's um, a bromance. It's <laughs> a, a Christmas movie. It's also a, a bit of a love story. Today, we're talking about the movie Die Hard. Die Hard! Uh, <laughs> Die Hard. This movie is very influential. So many movies have basically been Die Hard, but the speed is kind of Die Hard, but in a bus. Yeah, There's a teaser the, for a future episode we do on Speed, Die Hard mm -hmm. on a Bus. And then Speed yeah. 2, Die Hard on a Boat. <laughs> die Hard on a Boat, that's right. <laughs> and then there's also Violent Night, Die Hard, but it's Santa Claus. There's lots of TV shows that have done spoofs. Uh, Star Trek Next Generation did Die Hard, but on the Enterprise with Captain uh, Picard. And they also um, did it on Discovery as well. They did another one on Discovery mm -hmm. in, in Season 3 with Michael Burnham like actually in the Jeffrey's Tube like and a whole John McClane type thing as well. It was actually a really fun episode. <laughs> wow, I don't remember that. I, I know I've seen it because I've I watched every episode when it comes out. But mm -hmm. yeah, I'll have to go back and, and check that out again. Oh yeah, um, definitely worth a revisit. Yeah, yeah. Workaholics did a diehard, diehard, but in an office trying to get around a drug test. Mm -hmm. uh, to the kids listening, I don't recommend that. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll also have to do yeah. a follow up with Die Hard Three because. Like, I like Die Hard 2, but yeah. I feel like a lot of the themes that we talk about in this episode will carry over to Die Hard 2. But Die Hard 3, that Die Hard with the Vengeance, that's a great 
follow up, mm. I think, to this one. Okay. Which is and good. I did we'll have catch, to do a follow up. Yeah, and I caught a little bit of that recently, and I thought, yeah, things are so different now that we have a cell phone. Because mm. Die Hard Three is sort of like a scavenger hunt, basically, but with guns and bombs. And, and pay now and payphones. But now you can just look up answers on your phone very quickly yeah. and easily. You don't have to, you know, grab some stranger on the street and say like, "Who is the sixteenth president?" or whatever <laughs> yeah. it was. You just, you know, which is um, which is probably a good thing because considering the educational level of the average American <laughs> yeah. now, it's you're probably going to blow up instead. Uh, that that's a possibility. That's mm-hmm. a possibility. Um, let's see. So so going back to to the movie of the day, Die Hard, the original, the one and only. Uh, the one and only original that is. Um, I love this movie. Grew up, grew up uh, watching it. Uh, when I was a kid, I just thought it was a, a great, fun shoot 'em up movie. Revisiting it, revisiting it as an adult, it man, it's so smart and it's mm-hmm. so there's so um, it's so well acted. Um, there's so many funny lines. Every almost every line is. Uh, a catchphrase or something really memorable. Yeah. Um, then actually uh, my favorite lines have kind of shifted or I like all the lines, but yeah. rewatching it this time, one of my favorite lines was um, after the, the top of the building blows up and the FBI helicopter goes down the, he's not a chief of police, but maybe, you know, the guy in charge right. says something like, I guess we're going to need some more FBI guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like one of those like off color jokes that you don't really pick up the first time, and you're like, "Oh shit, that's really brilliant." Mm-hmm. And I think my second favorite line this time around was uh, th- that same character. Um, he's doesn't know what's going on. The they're they're they have a SWAT car coming up to the building, and then the Hans's gang they they call mm-hmm. them terrorists, but they're not actually terrorists. They're bank robbers, yeah. I guess. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a glorified bank robbery. Yeah, they're they're shooting at the lights, and then um, Al, uh, dad from Family Matters, says mm-hmm. they're shooting at the lights, and then <laughs> and then the deputy of police says they're shooting at the lights, like like as if he's <laughs> the one who just figured it out, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> I was I was loving that. But what's what's your history with the movie, and, and if you have any fa- favorite lines, uh, let me know. Like I mean, you know, for me, I. As I mentioned, like I, I love this movie to death, but to be honest, my first real introduction to this to this genre was Speed, which is why it's my mm, favorite movie. Yeah. So okay. from there, it was like, okay, that's obviously Die Hard on a bus, right? So I'm like, yeah. I should go watch the original Die Hard, and I did. So yeah. you know, I've seen it a bunch of times, and I love it. I mean, it's just a fantastic film. But for me, it's my, you know, it's it's to me, it's second to Speed, even though. I'm sure that's a very controversial statement (laughs) to make, you know, but just in general for me, like going into a movie like speed and then coming to die hard, I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, this is kind of, this is kind of fun. But um, no, I mean, it's, I I love this movie as well. Like you said, it's, it's just really brilliantly written Mm -hmm. um, great, just memorable quotes and one liners and, and just like kind of all the ways that they, you know, like the different, like, you know, the cat and mouse between McLean and Gruber, right. You know, just all the ways that they're like trying to, defeat each other and it's like okay you do this and do that but i will say like one of my <laughs> one of my favorite lines um is when john mcclain gets on the radio 
and he's mm-hmm. trying to contact the police, right? And then the person on the radio is like, uh, excuse me, whoever you are, this channel's reverse reserved for emergency <laughs> calls only. And he's yeah. like, no fucking shit. Does it sound like I'm ordering a pizza? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a great moment. It's just like, you know, you everybody's had those moments. You're like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's almost kind of like channeling, like, you know, my own inner rage in those kind of situations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like nice. so appropriate for that moment as well. But um, yeah, it was just, I love that really a lot. And then, uh, I mean, that was, yeah, pretty much kind of my favorite line. I love like a lot of, McLean's internal dialogue as well mm, yeah, you know yeah. like when he's in the when he's inside the vet and he's just kind of like talking to himself and he's like come out to the coast and we'll get together mm-hmm. and have a few laughs mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know just stupid like I, I just I love that air care part of his character so much I mean I think there was like a scene in, in when he's in the bathroom as well and he's like you know trying to clean up all the blood off of him you know and stuff like that and he's just kind of talking to himself as well just in this like sarcastic mm-hmm. manner just like that characterization of McLean I thought was so brilliantly written because it just adds a whole nother element he's not like you know you know we talked about the action stars of the 80s right like kind of like these you know big muscled airheads that are so you know strong that they have no weaknesses but in this case it's like okay you know he's he's obviously kind of irritated at this whole situation and (laughs) you know would rather be anywhere else right now doing anything Mm -hmm. else and (laughs) you know he's kind of like playing the hero role he's you know not really wanting to be the hero right now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just the way that, yeah, they characterize it like that is just, it's so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. And in a lot of ways, he's, he's a regular guy. He's very capable. He's very brave and smart and all those things and funny, but he's, he's a regular guy. And when he gets shot, it hurts when someone punches right. him, it hurts. He's vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable too. all that stuff. And, and, and there to... was such great symbolism in the film about that, yeah. right? Like, you know, the fact yeah. that they had the whole, like, subplot where like you know when he like when he goes and tries to escape from the like when the Mm -hmm. the the robbers or the terrorists like they first make their move and he's in the bathroom and then he like knows something's going on so he like quickly tries to run away and he doesn't have his shoes Mm -hmm. which doesn't seem like it's a that was um what is it that's a um the trope is um Chekhov's gun right so you think Mm -hmm. oh the Chekhov's gun is like why would you do this if it doesn't have a purpose later on in the story And so they made a specific point of him not having his shoes in that scene to make sure that in the later on to show that he is a human and is fallible and has weaknesses so that when he gets in that situation where he's surrounded by the broken glass and he's in bare feet and, you know, his the only way of escape was stepping on the broken glass. Like, yeah, yeah, it's one of the the best uh, scenes in the movie. And it's so memorable for just for all movies. And then before we keep going, let me uh, find the IMDb description. I guess, quick. I guess in case anybody has not seen this movie, <laughs> we should probably tell them what it's about. I know. So Die Hard, 1988. Here's the one sentence description. A New York City police officer tries to save his estranged wife and several others taken hostage by terrorists during a Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles. All right. That's a description, but it's also so much more than that. And going back to movie tropes for a second, it has one of my favorite movie tropes from mainly 80s movies. And that's just when a guy from out of town, usually some some like Detroit or mm-hmm. New York or Chicago, some place where uh, – you know, real people live, and I'm from California, but still, right. you know, real people are from outside from the of California. the big city of New York, you know, coming yeah. all the way to little town California. 
Yeah. Um, they come to California and then they see something outrageous or quirky or uh, just something that's so LA. And then they go, they shake their head and laugh and go, <laughs> California. Uh, I, I don't know why, but I love that. I love it when John McClane does it. I love it when uh, Axel. Um, Axel Foley from Beverly Hills Axel, Cop. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> why I was thinking of as you said that. I was like, that's exactly yeah. what Beverly Hills Cop does. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't know why. But if I were in an 80s movie, I would definitely want to shake my head and laugh and say California. Um, I feel like if there's like a movie that's like kind of making fun of 80s action films, it should be like, Mm -hmm. instead of, oh, California, (laughs) oh, 80s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Huh. I wonder, there's got to be. Well, we'll have to think about that. But there's got to be a movie that's a spoof of 80s action movies. It's, oh, uh, Hot Shots Part 2. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't yeah, seen that in a, a long one. time. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but going back to, to Die Hard, or, uh, and, uh, you know, as you know, this is a podcast where we talk about movies through the lens of mental health and sports psychology. Um, yeah. So there's there's so much going on. And it, it's, mm-hmm. it's easy to think this is just a dumb, fun movie. Uh, but I'll try to say one last thing about just the movie before we get into the sports psychology part. But it's also, uh, I was surprised when I found out that it was based off of a book. But then when you think about it, it's exactly like a book. John Mm -hmm. McClane spends most of his time alone and he thinks out loud narrating everything that happens. And he tries to watch the bad guys and look for clues and figure out what their plan is. So that's yeah. a, that's a book. That's, uh, that's that's not that's like not even a book. That's just like a basic like short story. I mean, it's like yeah. just the basic foundation of that story is just mm-hmm. you know man foils bank robbery, right? You know, which mm-hmm. could take a shape in many forms. So like the basic yeah. plot structure is very simple like that. But obviously, mm-hmm. we know that it's a lot more developed in the movie. But yeah, it's always interesting yeah. to see how a lot of these movies like that, like the plot is surprisingly simple for what the actual final product of the movie is. Yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's a great movie, and there's so many great character moments, and so many, um, just so much going on. And to go back to your idea of this cat and mouse game between Hans Gruber, uh, played by Alan Rickman. Um, I don't know if he's a Sir Sir Alan Rickman, but he probably should have been if he wasn't. I don't think uh, he was at that point because this was actually yeah. his very first movie role, like ever yeah. as an actor, his very first role. Yeah, and he's so great at it. And watching it as an adult, because I always liked him, but watching it as an adult, there's so much going on with every facial expression, every movement. Uh, He's just brilliant. Yeah, you you look at him and his, like, performance in this, you're like, okay, this dude has been acting forever. You know, he's really good at what he does. And it's the thought, the fact that it is his first major, you know, movie role, it's just like, wow, holy like yeah. this dude has got some serious talent here. I mean, geez. Yeah. 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 So he's got to be uh, one of the best all time movie villains, if not the best, um, especially if we're going for eighties. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so we have this cat and mouse game between Hans Gruber and John McClane. And uh, they're both, they're both very likable. And even if you don't like Hans Gruber, he's mm-hmm. still captivating. And he's very so charming. Capable. Like he's he's yeah. a good villain because he's charming. Yeah, and there are plenty of movies. And then I love Beverly Hills Cop, but you know, uh, 
Axel Foley is it, a lot of times he's smart because everybody else is dumb. But yeah. in Die Hard, what's so great about it is John McClane is really smart and really capable. And Hans Gruber is really smart and really capable. Mm -hmm. And the bad guys are really dangerous. And his wife is a fleshed out character. Like every, every, mm -hmm. So everybody is, um, you know, uh, capable, a capable yeah. person. Um, but and what, what I like about that, too, is that, like, mm -hmm. you know, they're both very smart and capable, but in yeah. two completely opposite yeah. ways. Like, they're, mm -hmm. you know, night and day between McClane and Gruber there mm -hmm. in terms of, like, you know, as I was mentioning, Gruber has a plan. He's got mm -hmm. people that, you know, on his team that know exactly what their roles are, what their jobs are. He knows exactly every single step of the process to achieve what he wants versus McClane, who has no plan, has <laughs> nobody other mm -hmm. than himself is improvising yeah, yeah. everything right you know it's like order and chaos is basically what it is and how they're yeah. basically kind of going up against each other in in this cat and mouse game just because it's two completely polar opposite but equally competent and capable you know people here that it's really intriguing like that because they can really go head to head in a lot of ways which we obviously see in the movie that just makes for like really thrilling like you really don't know who's actually going to come out on top of this in this thing Right, right. And Hans Gruber, um, he's playing chess. He has thought out everything. He knows things that apparently even his the members of his gang don't know. Like right. uh, he had the FBI as a part of his plan the whole time, mm -hmm. and then he didn't he didn't tell his uh, his crew. Maybe that. And then I didn't think about it before because it's it's a movie. But thinking about it now, I think. Maybe he did that on purpose so that they can't, they can't turn on him. Right. They always need him. They can't do anything without him. So he holds all the cards, yeah. and then that's not a chess analogy anymore. But mixing well, things up a little. <laughs> right. Well, it uh, kind of reminds me. It actually reminds me a lot of like he. You could tell Heath yeah. Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight mm. was kind of inspired mm. by Hans Gruber in this regard because mm. with Heath Ledger, like. His Joker has, you know, these plans that he executes like almost flawlessly here. But, you know, he knows each bad guy. OK, you do your part and then you're no longer relevant. So obviously Heath Ledger's Joker is a little more brutal when he you knows, OK, you you broke into the bank. OK, boom, you're dead, you know, and shoots off his bad guys, whereas Hans Gruber is trying not to do that. But, you know, it's yeah. kind of the same idea where he he knows, OK, he holds all the cards here. So he's only giving the information relevant to each person so that they could do their job, but they don't need to know all the other steps. And that mm -hmm. way, like you said, it makes it so that they don't turn on him and, and, you know, mm -hmm. take everything for themselves either. And going back mm -hmm. to kind of what you said, like the FBI being part of his plan was also like, he knew that when they were breaking into the electromagnetic lock in the, um, in the vault mm -hmm. where, you know, there were so many layers of security there and to break through the final layer relied on them cutting power to the building so he knew that the fbi mm. would cut power to the building which was part of his plan to get through that final lock which to me kind of seems like okay why would you design even if it's like only one layer of yeah. many why would a, you design a lock that could just be easily passed up by just you know dropping power to it yeah. but i mean you know I'm not here mm -hmm. to question the, you know, security <laughs> plannings of Nakatomi Plaza, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, just, you know, Hans Gruber was smart enough to say, okay, I know I need to have the power cut at some point to get yeah. to this lock. So he, like you said, really planned things out like a chess game there, you know, and mm -hmm. really knew exactly what steps were going to happen when. 
Yeah. And then when you said that, that reminded me a little bit about um, the Titanic. You know, they had certain vulnerabilities on the ship because they thought it would never get this far. But then it did. And, yeah. you know, we know, and we that's, know what happened. You know, and this is where I really geek out about like chaos theory and complex systems stuff. Mm-hmm. So in the future, when we do my episode on Jurassic Park, we'll definitely have a whole <laughs> chat about this. Right. Mm-hmm. But you think, mm-hmm. OK, like little minor little details mm-hmm. here and there that seem pretty insignificant. So we don't really need to worry about that. But if enough of those start to kind of compound on each other, then at some point, you know, they start to kind of influence each other. And and this system that is seemingly stable and put together well and and, and resilient all of a sudden starts to break down where these seemingly insignificant details that you left out all of a sudden become major issues that lead to this, you know, the, the state of a, any system to start to become unstable and then when that happens, then eventually the whole thing falls apart and collapses. And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like what Titanic happened. I mean, that was just a culmination. Yeah. The actual event itself was a culmination of a lot of smi- mi- minor little flaws that in a, on their own may not have been a big deal, but they all came together in this one random perfect moment yeah. that, you know, kind of showed the whole, you know, in, in vulnerability of the entire thing. Yeah, yeah. And in Jurassic Park... You know, um, in some ways, the dinosaurs weren't planning. In some ways, they kind of hint. And I've really mainly seen the first one. So mm-hmm. things can yeah, be different. Yeah, we about the first one. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. But the de- the dinosaurs um, were kind of planning or they were always testing for vulnerabilities. And in right. this situation, Hans was just aware of every vulnerability and had a plan for every situation. Except and knew how to for, exploit uh, any real yeah. vulnerability, but also to have mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, because obviously with John McClane is, is mm-hmm. kind of the agent of chaos within, yeah. you know, Gruber's order, orderly plan there. And so being able to have enough resilience there to say, okay, to accommodate for something like a chaotic yeah. attractor like John McClane coming in and saying, oh, I'm going to mess this up for you. I'm going to take out this person. Okay, well. Gruber needs to be able to anticipate something like that happening. Maybe he doesn't know fully what's going to happen, but resilient enough to say, okay, if like a person a in my team gets taken out, then make sure that there's somebody else available to, to cover his job. Or mm-hmm. if this happens, then, you know, what do I have is kind of a, a way to adapt and overcome that. Right. So he was very mm-hmm. good at kind of making a resilient, plan there so that it would be easily adaptable if you know somebody comes in and messes things up right so you know kind of kicks off a few of his players off the board well how does he still achieve his goal yeah exactly and for the most part he did um like you're saying he had um uh strategies in mind already when when john rang the fire alarm or pulled the fire alarm um he immediately called the uh um uh, the the guard at the front desk or the person posing as a guard said, you know, call the police department or fire department, give them your security guard ID number or whatever it was and tell them it was a false alarm. Boom, mm-hmm. that's done. Exactly. And so he, he had these plans in place, but John was just, uh, I guess he was just to New York, too, too from outside of California mm-hmm. and um, you know, too much, too much of a, a rascal. And he was, you know, barefoot, tippy-toeing around and uh, just causing all kinds of hijinks. Mm-hmm. And eventually there was just too many hijinks and uh, Hans wasn't wasn't able to overcome it in the end. Well, and it's it's what's interesting yeah. about that, right, is that that shows strong emotional regulation mm-hmm. on Hans Gruber where, yeah. 
okay, you know, here's this kind of guy that's kind of starting to poke him a little bit, but Hans is able to maintain his composure, stick to the plan, stay focused, able to continuously execute what he came there to execute. But a lot of McLean's strategy was, you know, start to kind of poke at him a little bit, start to get under his skin because he knew that, you know, Gruber wasn't going to be able to maintain composure and maintain focus. So if he could get Gruber to break, you know, and become emotionally more driven by emotion rather than logic there, then it's a lot easier for him to make a move, right? Because if Gruber goes from, okay, I'm, I'm focused, I'm concentrated. I have my plan here, but then he starts to think on emotion, then he's going to be more likely to act irrationally and be more likely to make a mistake that makes it easier for McLean to exploit when he really needs to make his big move to, to take him down. Right. So that was a lot of it. We're like at the very beginning when everything, you know, kicked off and, and, and Hans started to initiate his plan, you know, McLean knew he couldn't make it, make any moves then to take him out. Right. Because he needed to, to kind of chip away at things, you know, okay, take out some guards here, take out some people there, you know, kind of use this as a way to like, you know, like when he, um, you know, he kind of like writes or, you know, does like writes, you know, something like, ha ha ha, got your guns, you know, just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, seemingly like childish stuff like that. Right. You know, it's it's kind of his way of, you know, you know, poking the bear and kind of mm-hmm. being that like annoying little kid that, you know, starts to, you know, nobody wants to kick a kid. Right. But the kid just keeps mm-hmm. like, you know, getting at you and eventually you're just like, shut up, you know, so, <laughs> you know, he knew what he was doing there so that if he can make Hans break, then it would definitely make it so that he could be more likely to make a move that could, you know, save the hostages. Yeah. Yeah. And John McClain would definitely be one of those athletes who are just constantly talking trash, mm-hmm. constantly playing little games and messing with someone. Trying to get in your head and trying mm-hmm. to, you know, you know, kind of get under your skin. Yeah. Yeah. To, to relate that to actual athletes for a second. Um, Cause it can be, that can be a really powerful tool. There's certain athletes that I think of. Uh, the Muhammad Diaz Ali brothers. is a big one. Muhammad Ali, yeah, Chael Sonnen, uh, Conor McGregor, they can just just nonstop talk trash. And it's not something that they just started doing for sport. It's something mm-hmm. that they've done their whole lives. It's part of their personality. And then if you're someone who's not prepared for that, it could be a real challenge. It could be really frustrating and right. difficult to deal with. And, um, yeah, John was able to use that skill to just keep poking the bear. Mm. And there's that great scene where Carl, the the German who uh, was like um, Hans's main henchman, his main lieutenant, uh, his muscle, came back to where the hostages were and was storming off down a hallway. And he's mad. Ah! And he kicks something. <laughs> and, then, and then Holly starts to smile. And like, John's alive. <laughs> yeah. Only John could drive like, something that crazy. She recognizes that response. You yeah. know? Like, she's probably seen him make uh, their friends act mm-hmm. like that more than a few times. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's probably felt that way, too. And yeah, exactly. That's why she moved she, Yeah, she definitely feels that herself, opposite. you know. She's yeah, probably like, yeah, was, don't worry, man. I know how you feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. So John, that John is great at that. And to go back to uh, John's, or at least some of John's skill set, you know, he can immediately see that Hans, or he doesn't know who Hans is at the beginning, but he can see something's going on. Something bad is going on. He starts observing. He mm. starts taking notes. And as he's kind of running through the different hallways he, I, 
I didn't notice it as a kid, but watching again recently, he's kind of taken an inventory and yep. he's memorizing locations. I think he says something like kitchen stairs, yeah. uh, like he's saying different things like that. And then he starts memorizing things like six, maybe more machine guns, mm-hmm. um, you know, Hans, Carl, and he's taking all these notes and he's, he's, so he's gathering all that information and then he starts putting into action and, um, and, you know, he's, he also knows that, you know, it's an 80s movie, it's an action movie, but he knows, oh, I can't just go running in, firing my right. gun, you know, waving it around. I, I need to observe. And when he can't win a fight, he runs away. Yeah. And that might sound, you know, like it's um, weak, but it's actually really smart and it keeps him alive so he can keep fighting until the end. And that's actually like it's an eighties. It's a definitely a movie, obviously, but yeah. it, that's actually based on the real strategies that they teach police officers. So yeah. he's acting. Yeah. Whoever did their research and mm-hmm. you know how do you be a police officer really did a good job in the characterization of him because that's exactly it. It's like one of the first things that they teach you, you know, because I've worked with police officers, you know, mm-hmm. years and years and years back. So I've I've been able to, and I've even kind of worked a lot in this realm. But, um, you know, that's the thing is the first thing is like, okay, observe and report like McClay knew that obviously Hay was outnumbered, so he could not go up against that entire group, you know, and expect to take him down. But he also was really reliant on having like the police come and and and, and he knew that eventually the police were going to come and, and attack and be there when they figured out what was going on. So he was trying to collect as much information as he could in preparing to relay the information to them as soon as he got to right so that's why he was saying okay you know count the number of guns count the number of henchmen count the locations where things are because when the police you know storm the place he wants to be able to give them as much information to support and help them take them down right you know because like you said you know he was out he was outgunned and he was outnumbered and you know he knew okay i Mm -hmm. could go head to head maybe with one maybe two people at a time but anything more than that would be dangerous and, 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 you know, foolish, right? He was not a fool. So he knew how to, you know, how and when to act. And if he needed to retreat, he would retreat because in the end it's better to retreat and stay alive rather than, you know, die trying to be a hero, but ultimately having no effect. Right. So he knew that he would be more effective. And if I stay back and collect this information, then I can pass it along to the police. So when they make a move and they're able to, be in a position better than I am, then they can, you know, utilize this information more effectively. So I was very smart the way that he was acting there because that was him acting entirely on instinct, right? You know, he had no plan. And as he was gathering information, you know, he's kind of strategizing from there and improvising, you know, based on what he would learn. But, you know, in this case, he's relying solely on his instinct. So his training and years of being a New York police officer, you know, and, and, and all the experience that he had from there was really, kind of you know he was relying on that experience and training to carry him through and you could even consider this like a performance right you know because this was a moment where you know his actions and everything that he was doing you know it's a high pressure situation you know he's got hostages he's got his wife you know everybody there is at risk of you know being completely you know killed by these by these these terrorists or or robbers or whatever you want to call them but you know so it's definitely a high stakes situation here where he has to perform and he knows it so being able to rely on his years of training and instinct 
to carry him through to be as effective as possible so that he could, you know, maintain his position and do as much as he can to protect, you know, the, the, Mm -hmm. the hostages as much as possible. So that when he knew that when the time would come with the uh, police being there, he wanted to make sure that they were ready for it. Right. Right. And the movie is so great at showing you cause and effect and things making sense. And, um, Hans, you know, he's a, a master of, of strategy. So you know, he kind of uses prison rules where he takes out the most important person at first. He pulls out Mr. Tagagi, the boss. He uh, he probably already, one of the things that was interesting, he walks around listing all of these qualities or descriptors of Mr. Tagagi mm-hmm. and then, until Mr. Tagagi steps forward saying, this is, it's me, I'm him, uh, whatever. Right. Uh, let's end the charade or something like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Hans probably already knew exactly what he looked like because he oh, was yeah. so prepared. So he was just kind of being intimidating at that moment. I mean, it's a, it's a show of dominance, right? Because, yeah. you know, he has to just establish to this group of hostages, he is in charge and nobody, he wants to discourage anybody from trying to be the hero and trying to step up and think that they could, you know, take him on. So he really needs to establish a firm, strong level of dominance. Right. And this is, you know, like you said, he takes the most important person in the room mm-hmm. and makes them come to him. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. was a huge show by making... Uh, Mr. Tagashi stand up and, you know, oh, that's me. And, right. you know, by making him do that rather than Hans coming up and saying, you, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's yeah. establishing dominance by saying, okay, Gruber's making him come to, to Gruber, you know, which is, right. yeah, and that's exactly just establishing dominance there and making sure that the hostages know who's in charge now. Yeah, yeah. And then he probably knows that he, Mr. Tagagi didn't have the codes he wanted. Tagagi. And I don't know he, why I said Tagashi, but Tagagi, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that he probably planned on killing him. And then now all the hostages know, ooh, okay, this is, you know, they will kill us. So yeah. we better just go along with them. One thing um, I found interesting was that later on, there's a scene where Holly comes up, you know, and she wants to negotiate on demand on, mm-hmm. on behalf of the hostages, right? And she's not negotiating for the release. She's negotiating th- yeah. for things like, you know, okay, we need to do bathroom trips. We need to do like food and water and things like that. But it's funny because when she comes in there and Gruber's like, and who puts you in charge? And she's like, well, you did when you killed my boss, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I really like that kind of like show of dominance from her of like, okay, I'm also the authority here in in this regard. And, you know, I thought that was a really great, you know, kind of counter characterization of her, you know, kind of standing up for, for herself and not letting herself be, you know, kind of diminished by Gruber, right. you know, and making sure that she's uh, able to establish authority as well, which I thought was really a really great, you know, it's a very small kind of scene there, but I just, I was, I really like that scene. Yeah, no, that is a great scene. And um, when I, I was noticing this time around that uh, when Hans and his gang comes in and they're firing their machine guns and intimidating people, everybody was panicking except for Holly and Mr. Mm-hmm. Tagagi. Um, and then now she's in charge and she is married to John. So she, part of her life is just to stand up to John yeah, or, or reset boundaries with him, not put up with his crap. So then she was very well prepared to, uh, have that moment with, with mm-hmm. Hans. And I mean, that's um, like, and not just the moment with Hans, but like you said, when they're firing the guns in the air and stuff, 
when everybody else is panicking, she's calm. You yeah. know, she's she's able to say, okay, she's able to observe yeah. what's happening, recognize it, stay calm, you know, be able to to be, you know, and that's definitely obviously, you know, uh, uh, not just a, a specifically with John McClane, right? But being married to a cop where, you know, she's probably dealt with scary situations like this in some regard, you know, and of course, then, you know, her tumultuous relationship with John McClane at that point, you know, definitely being able to, you know, be able to to have those skills to maintain calm under under pressure and, and, and especially in a scary situation like that. So that was definitely an important um, part of her character as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then um, we could probably talk about this all day, but we, we do need to be a little bit brief because of uh, because of time. Uh, so let me kind of recap for the listener um, uh, the situation that John are, and Holly are in, and then we can talk about their relationship. Uh, at the very beginning of the movie, uh, Holly is in L.A. She's getting ready for um, the office Christmas party and a visit from John. And then she calls home and talks to her housekeeper and then says, oh, you know what? Maybe John will will spend the night with us. I don't know. Maybe. Mm-hmm. And she talks to the daughter. Maybe, you know, maybe daddy will, will spend the night. Maybe. So that's immediately telling you that something is going on with their marriage. And when John is in the limo with limo driver Argyle, he's uh, kind of resisting Argyle's attempts mm-hmm. at small talk. But Argyle's like, come on, what's going on? Hey, you know, you and your wife, uh, you're, you're going through some trouble, huh? Uh, I know yeah. what's going on. And then it's revealed, like, uh, Holly went to work at a company. She got a big promotion. She mm-hmm. moved to L.A. Uh, John stayed in New York. He didn't want to leave. He thought she was going to kind of fizzle out and come come crawling back to New York. Yeah. So that's where their uh, marriage is at this point. And at the very beginning, they have a nice moment when they first see each other. Mm-hmm. And then it quickly turns into a fight. Yeah. And then shortly after that, the, the terrorists take over the building. Um, but what did you think of, of the relationship between John and Holly? You know, the first time I ever watched this film, I was so confused. I was like, why are they married if she lives in L.A. and he lives in New yeah. York? You know, and then, yeah, later on, they kind of like explain, you know, the the basic reason why they broke up and and in kind of the overall um overall you know status of their relationship you know and it's been interesting for me because i even now it's i still can't tell if they're separated or still together or divorced or what they're trying to do like are they trying to stay together on behalf of the kids you know why was she able to take the kids and go you know all the way across the country so it's very vague in the way that they present the relationship. And then at the same time, like we don't right when we're getting to kind of some insight into what the relationship is, then that's when the, you know, the terrorist and Hans Gruber and everybody take over and, you know, kind of put the kibosh on that. So, mm-hmm. you know, they leave a lot of unanswered questions for me, uh, but obviously they needed to establish a lot of, a lot of that foundation there, obviously for the reason why he was there in the first place, which, yeah. you know, I still don't understand why, you know, John McClane would expect to solve his marriage issues by going to the company Christmas party. But, you know, Mm -hmm. I guess you just got to do what you got to do. Right. Um, But then being able to establish that phone call with the kids and the housekeeper, because then later on when that news reporter catches on and decides to go confront them, which I'm like, okay, this news reporter, okay, that's unethical in so many regards, 
to kind of sneak over to some, know, you yeah. know, the how the kids of of mm-hmm. the kids of these hostages yeah. and be like, so what do you think about your parents being taken hostage? <laughs> you know, look, we're on live TV, yeah. so tell us. And it's like, the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> so, but obviously mm-hmm. they needed that as a plot point yeah. for Hans Gruber to see that on TV and then make the connection between John and mm-hmm. Holly themselves. Um, you know, in that regard, the one thing that kind of got me and and maybe this is because because i watched speed before i watched die hard is that at the end of the movie when all is well and you know the bad guys defeated and everything like that and they're all happy and together again and oh kiss and happy ending and we live happily ever after and it's like but did you actually like resolve the the underlying issues of your relationship here or you (laughs) you know relationships based on intense experiences never work out like this is speed you know 101 yeah okay just because you went through this scary situation and maybe that did help you you know bond through trauma but you still have the underlying foundation of why you're in la and he's still in new york and you need to figure that out before you decide (laughs) you know are we gonna live happily ever or not you know because this you probably would not have been in this situation at all (laughs) Had you figured that out beforehand, you know, yeah. you could have, cause I mean, in this case it was purely deterministic chaos, you know, mm-hmm. so it just happened to, it was just a coincidence that this all happened in that situation. But you know, it's, I mean, I liked, I liked the, the <laughs> you know, they definitely had conflict in the relationship, you know, which was good because that kind of served as a good exposition for, you know, how both characters responded to, Hans Gruber and everything that was happening with with the the robbers and the terrorists, but it just, I mean, it was like any action movie, right? You're like, okay, you know, oh, he gets the girl at the end, but they didn't really leave me satisfied with the way that that relationship developed. So I'm I'm yeah. happy for the sequels at least that they actually like tried to pick that plot thread up in the sequels a little bit more and yeah. actually develop the story all the way. I think up until Die Hard with the Vengeance when they finally were like, okay, now that just we're just gonna divorce them and. <laughs> move on because that serves okay. in die hard in die hard three right that serves as a major plot point for his character in yeah. die hard three when he's you know found on the street like drunk passed out on the sidewalk or whatever <laughs> and then there and then you know john uh hans gruber's brother in die hard three simon is like i'm going after john mcclain specifically so they're like mm-hmm. even the new york pd at that point is like we don't give a crap about him but the only reason why we're waking him up after his drunken stupor is because you know hans gruber's brother is is specifically targeting him but but that's Die Hard three, and we're talking about Die Hard one. So, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, like like you point out, marriages aren't solved because of action and excitement and all that stuff, or marriage problems aren't solved because of that. But so I, that, I guarantee they probably had some great sex that night, though. I bet <laughs> at least. So at least, hopefully, they both got some. Yeah, probably. Each other, ideally. <laughs> and uh, at the end, or towards the end of Die Hard, uh, the first one. They had a very bloody and gross kiss. Yeah. Um, after after that was John hilarious. kills That was Hans. hilarious because, like, it's always like you know, oh, they're all so pretty and looking. Look, they're kissing mm-hmm. happily ever after. And this one, they were like, no, they're both covered in blood, and it's pretty much as <laughs> gross as possible that you can imagine them having this kiss with. <laughs> yeah, very gross, very gross. Like, I hope and, you did like an HIV test after that or something because <laughs> you probably like put somebody else's blood in your mouth. Yeah, yeah, and also it's bad guy blood. Yeah. So I'm I'm assuming that's much more potent <laughs> yeah. than neutral or, or hero blood. Yeah, so if John um, McClain or, or Holly starts to develop like a German accent there, then you should probably go, <laughs> you know, go call somebody. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's, that's a great point. No offense well, to my German friends who are probably yeah. listening to this right now because I'm <laughs> recording this live in Germany. <laughs> well, to be fair, it would it might be kind of a a London slash German accent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's always funny. It's always up. the Germans are the villains, but they always have British accents. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, I know. Okay. Yeah, I guess it's just because we're used to it. So then, you know, we let's just give everybody a British accent. Well, okay, and 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 I absolutely love my German friends, mm-hmm. but a German accent when speaking English is not exactly intimidating. Mm, okay. I'm just gonna say that I love my German friends, but you all sound so cute and adorable <laughs> when you speak English with a German accent. So if you're trying to be the villain there, that's not gonna work. If it was German yeah. with a German accent, it would be great. But English with a German accent, that's just too cute. Well, I am thinking about the um, the bad guy from Inglorious Bastards, and I'm trying oh. to remember his name. Waltz, or, or I don't know, but the, that guy is crazy. That guy yeah. is scary. Um, but uh, So going back to uh, John and, and Holly and their marriage, one of the things I picked up on is when it came to – you know, being an, an action star, being a, a hero or uh, a police officer, John was very good at value-driven behavior. Mm-hmm. And he did not want to um, uh, stick his nose in anybody else's business. He didn't want to fight bad guys. He wanted the LAPD to take care of it and for him to sit back. But that just didn't happen. So he had a step forward. And in his marriage... He became, at least at the beginning, he was a lot less um, effective when it came to value-driven behavior. He knew, you know what, I flew all the way here. Let me make amends with Holly. Let me be nice. Let me, you know, address things that we haven't addressed before. And he was able to do that for about two minutes. And then when things were going really well, then he said, yeah, but... um, I guess you don't like my last name very much because I saw that you're going by Gennaro. So what's that all? And then it just (laughs) immediately escalated. Um, It's like you were going so good there and then you just had to fuck it up. I know. And he knew it too because immediately after Holly left, he hit his head against a wall and said, (laughs) come on, John, what are you doing? So so he knows. He knows he messed up. Well, and that's like what's really interesting about that, right? Like you said, I mean – you know, when him being in the cop role, you know, he knew exactly what to do. And like you said, value driven behavior, because this is instinctually built into him based on years of training and development from his job. So he knew exactly everything that he needed to do and knew exactly where his boundaries were of what's appropriate behavior and what's not appropriate behavior mm-hmm. to help him be successful. But yeah, obviously he doesn't have the same kind of experience or, you know, training as it were when it comes to talking to girls Mm. (laughs) (laughs) wife you know Mm. or okay obviously he can't apply cop rules to his wife because i'm sure that would not go over well either but you know just that simple of like okay here's what is the appropriate thing to say and then here's Mm. what the boundary is he doesn't quite know where that boundary is so then when he all of a sudden you know decides well what's the whole last name thing about it's Mm -hmm. you know all of us are just like you know face palm. <laughs> but at the same time you're like yeah you know he's kind of a moron in this regard <laughs> for as smart as he is with going mm-hmm. against hans gruber he's really a moron mm-hmm. going up against his own wife <laughs> and, and that's a, you made a great point um when he is jumping into action against hans and and the the germans 
he has uh, he sort of has a, an outline of a protocol. He observes, he takes down he takes down notes, he gathers information, and then he finds an opportunity. And then when it came to Holly, he didn't have that same protocol in mind. Not mm-hmm. that you would want to be a robot, but <laughs> all he knew was be nice, try to be nice, try to be nice. Oh, anger got the best of me. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> yeah, and it would be really helpful if he went to couples counseling mm-hmm. or something. And it if makes he me, knew it how makes to me wonder it. how many girlfriends he's had before he married Holly. That's my question. Because mm-hmm. obviously he didn't have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> not not healthy relationships, at least. Right, um, at least, yeah. 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 So Hans, and I'm not a couples therapist. But well, and I was going to say, I don't want to I don't want to become like Sigmund Freud here, but maybe that had mm-hmm. something to do with his mom. Like, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it could, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, then Freud and a lot of people would say that you end up reenacting your relationship with your parents with um other adults especially your 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 spouse spouse. yeah Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense i mean who knows you know it's yeah it's it's kind of an offshoot here but like one of my favorite quotes is from fraser because Mm. in the tv show fraser the sitcom fraser crane is is as as a freud you know his 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 philosophy is rooted in freud and so when there's an episode where his brother niles takes over his radio show and it's not and Niles is like, oh, Frazier's a Freudian, and I'm, you know, I don't remember what he says, but he's like, but we're not going to be blaming anybody's mother today. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I think of Stephen Freud, I always think of that. We're not blaming yeah. anybody's mothers today. Yeah, yeah, that reminds me of another uh, Frazier episode where Frazier is getting really Freudian with somebody, going into like really deep dark stuff, and then the next psychologist just says, hey, did uh, did you have breakfast? Oh, okay, and how do you feel? Oh, it sounds like you might just need some eggs. You know, might, you might be hypoglycemic. Maybe right. have some protein in, in your breakfast. Oh, thank you. I was really starting to get scared there for a second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Next time, just have protein. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe John just needs some eggs sometimes. Maybe exactly, he needs a spoonful know? of peanut butter or I something. I mean, did he even have any snacks when he got there? Or like, was the snack table destroyed by Hans Gruber before he had a chance? That's right. That's right. I we never see him take any snacks. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I would be pissed and, off. I'd be like, okay, Hans, you want the mm-hmm. hostages back? Well, give me a freaking Christmas cookie already. <laughs> <laughs> and we never see Carl, the most angry of uh, Hans's henchmen, have a snack either. So right? that guy was probably. I mean, yeah. hanger is a real thing. It's you know, yeah. have a have a cookie, bro. Have a Snickers bar or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, TSA law enforcement. If you're listening, have snacks ready, and mm-hmm. that's you know that's going to be good for you and for uh, for villainous Germans. Uh, I, I I recently got some feedback on on some of the sports psychology work that I do, and one of the feedback was have have some, have more snacks. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so I'm gonna have always a bag of snacks with me, no matter what, you know, just because yeah. it, it'll help. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I would recommend couples counseling for John and for Holly. And snacks. Um, yeah. And snacks. And maybe a cliff bar or yeah. an apple. At least something. Or, you know, just something. Yeah. Maybe something. an egg. Maybe an egg. Yeah. 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 Can't go wrong with that. Yeah. And then um, John. So the whole time, you know, he's uh, under a lot of pressure. He's barefoot. He's one guy alone. He, he has a, a pen pal, sort of, mm-hmm. with Al, uh, the yeah. dad from Family Matters. Uh, but mostly he's alone and dealing with a lot of pressure. Uh, what were your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so I, you know, he was really good at being able to stay calm under pressure because, like you said, that's a very high pressure situation where, you know, people's lives are at risk and, you know, there's not a, you don't know what's going to happen next. And so, even though he was playing mind games and acting seemingly immature to Hans, and then, of course, notwithstanding his relationship with Holly and that going off the rails, but the way that he was interacting with Hans and taunting him and using his dead henchmen to, get under his skin and stealing his mm-hmm. C4 and all these things like that, where he's seemingly playing this, you know, immature childish person, but internally as a collect, you know, he's maintaining calm and, and, yeah. and quite, you know, staying cool under pressure, which was really important because in that kind of situation, it's easy to get scared. Um, and especially as it continues going on and you don't know what's going to happen next. And it seems like, yeah things are starting to fall apart and it's, you know, like you said, it's, it's going from a stable plan and starting mm-hmm. to descend where the picking away is starting to, you know, cause, for example, as it goes along, Hans is becoming more desperate. And mm-hmm. when Hans starts acting emotionally, he starts acting more erratic and unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. basic chaos theory on its own, because when you're starting to act more irrationally and unpredictable, you are showing instability And as a result, you are becoming more desperate to see your plan through. So the important thing was, was that McLean was maintaining his own calmness under this Mm -hmm. pressure, because as this very dangerous man is becoming increasingly unstable and more desperate in trying to see his plan through, things will get very scary and very dangerous very quickly. And so McLean was very Mm -hmm. good at being able to maintain that calmness to be able to properly counter that. Right, right. And uh, John was so effective, he chipped away at uh, Hans's men and Hans's plan for long enough to the point where Hans was kind of forced to leave the safety of his office to go look on the detonators. I'm assuming enough people had died and enough people were busy doing other tasks that Hans went to go do that. And he also, I think he also thought that John was just out of commission, just hiding and waiting for the police to take over. So he took a calculated risk and then, and in a way it actually paid off because he got the detonators Mm -hmm. and, um, and then bloodied up John's feet, making him even more vulnerable. So in a way that was actually a win for Hans. Yeah, it totally was because there was the scene where um, John goes to the roof and runs into Hans Mm -hmm. and they both run into each other. And then Hans is trying Mm -hmm. to, you know, play, Oh, I'm just one of the Mm -hmm. hostages that somehow straight away (laughs) from the group. And, you know, he's improvising at that point, you know, and pretending, but John, Mm -hmm. John is smart enough to know, okay, I'm going to play along with him and go along Mm -hmm. and see kind of what he does here. But I know that he's not one of the hostages. I know that he's Mr. Hans Gruber because he was observing enough to know what the guy looks like. So he's able to, to play along to the point. Cause at that point he was at a disadvantage and he knew mm-hmm. it. So instead of revealing any cards that he had, he was able to just kind of play along and go along with it in the hopes that he might have an opportunity to make a move at that point. Unfortunately, as you said, in this situation, it actually worked more to Hans's advantage where he was able to, to best McLean and came out with the win in that situation. So, you know, and that was, I think, the important part about this cat and mouse game is that mm-hmm. it was important that Hans did win a few of these matchups. 
right. like that to show, okay, they are make equally matched. And again, that McLean is fallible and that he is not, you know, 100% action hero here that he can be defeated. So I think that adds further tension and pressure to say, okay, well, we really don't know who's actually going to win in this situation. Right. Right. Yeah. So then he becomes more physically vulnerable with his feet bloodied. And then interestingly, uh, he turns to his friend, his pen pal, Al. John opens up to Al in a way that he hasn't opened up to Holly before. And they have a really nice moment. And and John is talking about how Holly, like, you know, he's they've been in a million arguments before. And um, Holly has never heard him say, I'm sorry. And, you know... Um, and he wants Al to, to give Holly that message mm-hmm. that he understands, you know, what he did uh, that harmed their marriage. Or he understands he wasn't the best partner and he's learned his lesson and, and he loves her. And it's a really nice moment of emotional vulnerability. And um, yeah, and it, it does hint that their marriage has a future, like it can be yeah. saved. And then... Um, yeah, we don't we don't get to see what happens after that, but at least in that moment, it was it was it was looking good. It was looking good for John and Holly. Well, and I mean, it's like I mean, and no offense, but typical straight guy, like here you are emotionally opening yourself mm-hmm. up to some rando you've never met before on yeah. a radio, <laughs> mm-hmm. talking about your marriage <laughs> issues with your wife when your wife yeah. is in the next room and you could be discussing this I with know. her instead. <laughs> you know. <I> <laughs> It's like, come on, dude, just say those same things yeah. to your wife, and I'm sure mm-hmm. she'll understand. But, you know, it's, I mean, in the end, I, maybe they talk about it after the fact, or, you know, they mm-hmm. resolve their issues in this regard after the fact, where maybe, you know, Sergeant Powell was like, hey, dude, remember all that crap you told me when you thought you were about to yeah. die? Go tell her. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and stuff like that. But, yeah, like you said, it, it's nice to see him be emotionally vulnerable, even if it is to a stranger. <laughs> But yeah, at the same yeah. time, it's, you know, at the same time, you're like, okay, dude, I mean, it, you're not going to lose any of your masculinity by sharing these same feelings with your actual wife and help yeah. you actually discuss and communicate, you know, these problems. But like you said, that's probably why they should be in marriage counseling in the first place, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because yeah. sometimes that's all it is, is just having a frank, communicate, open and honest communication session. Yeah. It, it would be an interesting side quest to have John kind of pause on foiling Hans's plans mm. and just tippy toe into the crowd <laughs> yeah. and, and whisper to Holly and, you know, and they can just hash things out for a little bit mm-hmm. and then he could tippy toe back out and, and right. get back to, uh, to his, his game, his fight against Hans. Finally, finally he go have some snacks there for a few moments. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a Christmas party for the, they have to have candy canes and whatever else. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Get yeah. some rice crispy treats and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. And then now, um, as far as, you know, how we could work with uh, some of the characters in this movie, there's so many characters, so many characters. Mm. I mean, Hans, um, John, Holly, these are the main people we've talked about. There's also uh, Argyle in the parking lot. There's Al. There's... I, was, I was really happy to see that Argyle mm. as well actually had a role in the story, too, even though it was like yeah. super minor. But yeah. because they had that that moving van parked in the garage, and then yeah. when they locked down the building, he was the only other person in the garage, and he was able to drive the limo and knock yeah. out that, you know. So it was kind of like one of those like nice like little tiny little moments there. But you're just like, okay, 
there's a reason why that they had this guy hanging around in the garage all night. And then it wasn't just for, you know, oh, plot, but it was like, oh, he actually served a purpose of the story and kind of was a bit of a hero in mm-hmm. his own right. So, yeah, I mean, like exactly. you said, you know, going in and working with some of the characters, because, I mean, like you said, there's a lot of a lot of these characters have some major issues um, yeah. and stuff. I mean, I for me as a professional, I would say I would want to work with Sergeant Powell because, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, you know, he as we were talking about, you know, he had a hard time firing the gun right you know yeah. and, and because he had faced this traumatic incident where he shot the kid and you know as a result he was kind of put on desk duty or he was like kind of his role in the police department was kind of subdued a bit because he wasn't able to perform at the level he needed to so definitely you know at least from a sports psychology perspective yeah. that's something i feel like would be more within my scope of practice to work with of saying yeah. okay how do we help you overcome this mental barrier you know go to the shooting range and help you you know Mm. learn how to shoot a gun again and feel okay about it you know and 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 make sure that you understand when is the appropriate time to do it maybe practice a little more self-control in your observational awareness so that you don't accidentally shoot another kid right (laughs) you know or something like that (laughs) like yeah you know i think i think there's a lot to work with there um specifically but you know obviously like you said there's holly there's um john there's the the marriage between the two mm-hmm. so i'm sure that the both of them could you know use a lot of work separately and i wouldn't say mm-hmm. i want to work with him but i would love to go to that newspaper that that news reporter and just like mm-hmm. smack him in the face and i'm really glad that Holly <laughs> got that moment as well when she like just mm-hmm. completely clocked him like if there's yeah. anybody here that really deserves a punch in the face, it's the news reporter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of characters in the movie that are um, great at being incompetent. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they don't have bad intentions necessarily, but they're thinking about themselves and they're just trying to get some kind of win for themselves. Mm-hmm. And then it ends up, uh, you know, biting them or uh, somebody else. Um, yeah. There's so many characters. Um I mean, I would refer John and Holly to couples therapy for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like, okay, wash the blood mm-hmm. off and then go right to the couple therapy. <laughs> I, know, I know. I know. Jeez. Um, the kids could probably benefit from family oh, therapy. or are going to need some therapy after that. I, I guarantee that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and this is just before, just from probably dealing with their parents' relationship and that whole drama. They probably need some therapy just from that alone, you know, mm-hmm. let alone, you know, the news reporter randomly knocking on the door. Hey, by the way, both mm-hmm. your parents are in a hostage situation right now and they're I probably going to die. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah. I know. Jeez, that was so terrible. Like, oh, yeah. that was such an, like, that really pissed me off. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things I noticed is that, um, I think part of the motivation for that, uh, news person, was that the ink the in studio anchor was incompetent? Mm-hmm. I didn't notice that before, but he just has that one line where he says something like, uh, "That would be Helsinki, uh, Sweden, or, or something <laughs> yeah. like that," and then uh, actually Finland, yeah, and then everybody yeah. kind of like, "Oh man!" Like you, so in one line, he is able to show just how stupid he really is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think that's kind of showing that the on-the-spot news person or whatever they're called, the remote news person, mm-hmm. is frustrated and just trying to get a win. Yeah. And then that's part of why he does this unethical thing. Well, what I was going to say, uh, I mean, he probably yeah. has some pressure on his own front, right? Because yeah. he has to perform. He has to 
maybe prove himself as a as a professional as well. Maybe he wants the top anchor position because he knows that the current mm-hmm. anchor is a moron. So he thinks, right. oh, this guy's going to get fired here real quick mm-hmm. and I can get his spot, but I need to do something to kind of set myself yeah. apart to get in. And maybe that's what ultimately yeah. leads to his actions in this regard. But, you know, it's definitely an intentional behavior and I'm sure it has something to do with him, the, you know, pressures of, of the job itself and whatever that could also influence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I didn't think about it before, but that news person could probably be, um, really helped by just just therapy just work yep. stuff out definitely, you know, definitely think about your choices yeah. yeah maybe maybe a surgeon yeah. to fix the nose after you know holly punched it <laughs> well deserved at least <laughs> yeah yeah let's see and then like you pointed out uh al or, or sergeant pal mm-hmm. um he uh, i think he he probably has ptsd and can be yeah. really helped by um, trauma-informed therapy, and then also working with a sports psychology professional, mm-hmm. doing all the performance stuff could go hand-in-hand with that. Yeah, so that would be great. Um, Hans, uh, Hans dies, but... <laughs> yeah, can't really work with now can we? <laughs> yeah, that would be... I would have no clue how to work with Hans, but there are I mean, how psychologists... do you work with the villain? Yeah. Well, well, there are psychologists in prison who work yeah. with incarcerated people. Some of them could be, um, you know, sociopaths or psychopaths or very intelligent. So I don't know what they do, but they do something. Well, be interesting. Okay. Yeah. Here's a great side story that actually has a villain based on it, right? Mm. In one of the in one of the the classes that I teach, so I teach yeah. you know different types of sports and strength and conditioning and stuff. And sometimes my athletes, you know, we talk about you know motivation for doing sport doing exercise things like that and one of them always likes to joke around and he's like you know one day i'm gonna rob a bank and i need to be physically fit enough to be able to outrun the cops when i rob this bank so i'm doing exercise to help me train (laughs) (laughs) and i say okay well make sure that when you're in prison you write me a testimonial that says david's training is great because i was fast enough to outrun the cops after i ran a bank so Go work nice. with David if you want to get physically fit. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Like, okay. Well, there's a lot of ways you can measure progress and being able to outrun the police because you train for it. That's one way to measure progress. So, you right. know, it, it is possible to work with villains in this regard. But for me personally, I don't want to become a villain myself. So sure. I might I might choose not to work in that with that sure. particular population. But yeah. there's definitely a, probably a market out there for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, jeez, yeah, and that would make a very interesting Yelp review or <laughs> yeah. maybe link. Imagine that LinkedIn recommendation, recommendation on my LinkedIn, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. your your recommendation than that one. You're like, hmm, I'm not sure how this how I should evaluate this person professionally, yeah. but you know, you can't argue with yeah. the results. <laughs> yeah, so that oh yeah, that's that that's I, I'm look forward I'm looking forward to seeing you having a five star review on Yelp. With yeah. with uh, maybe a picture of a bank robber or something, right? Um, and like, come to me before you rob the bank, so I'm not implicated <laughs> or complicit in this. Right, right. Wink, wink. I'm just uh, here to I'm just here to teach sport. Where what you do with that <laughs> after you leave my gym? That's on you. Nice. All right, and then it's time to to wrap up uh, right now. So, uh, where can uh, the listeners find you? On Instagram, Stonewall Performance. Also on Instagram, Fit with Pride. Mm-hmm. You can find me on my website, www.stonewallperformance.com. 
On there, I have links to my LinkedIn, my Facebook, and my YouTube channel. Also, one more, one more. Oh, yeah. I have my Podchaser credit list mm-hmm. of all my fabulous mm-hmm. episodes of Movie House Sports Psychology and some of the other podcasts that I did as well. So you can find that also on my website, snowballperformance.com. And, you know, we can check out all my episodes on there and all the other fabulous places where you can find me. Awesome. And you have a very interesting project coming up uh, pretty soon. Uh, Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. So inspired by the Movie House Sports Psychology podcast and with help from Jason, I am preparing to launch my own podcast called Drag Race Psychology, where we look at seasons and episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race through the lens of sports psychology. So we'll be evaluating one or two episodes per season of Drag Race. We're going to review the queens, the challenges, the tops and the bottoms, and (laughs) examine the charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent of what it takes to be America's Next Drag Superstar from a sports psychology Mm -hmm. perspective. So that'll be coming out hopefully soon. I'm still working my way through the first season of Drag Race. So when I get that done, we'll get our first episode out there and then we'll be able to go from there. So make sure you give that a listen and we'll make an announcement about that hopefully here soon. Awesome. And this Jason guy sounds great. And uh, he is fabulous. (laughs) Fabulous. Yes. This Jason guy sounds fabulous. Uh, And you of course are fabulous as always. Uh, So thanks. (laughs) Thanks for joining the podcast and can't wait to do this again. Awesome. I look forward to it. This has been movie house sports psychology. Find me on Instagram or Twitter using my handle at CBT Sports Psych. And tell me what you think. Thanks for listening.